I want to title my message this morning, Living Fearless in Fearful Times. If there's anything that describes the times that we are in and have been in, uh, over our lifetime, we've seen ebb and flow of that, but for the last many, many months, there has been an incredible release of a spirit of fear not only in our local community, but in our state, in our nation. And in fact, I talk to friends in different parts of the world, and it's there too. How many know the Bible's right when it says fear has torment? That's right, isn't it? And so I want to talk about living fearless. If you are fearless, that means you're without fear, isn't it? Isn't that right? Fear does not have authority or control over you. Please open your Bible to chapter 12 of uh, the book of Luke. Luke's gospel, chapter 12. Now, you'll be pleased to know that I'm not going to read the entire chapter. But I do want to give you, I've got, I've got to change my clock. I have an hour and 35 minutes here. I need to, are you good with that? Let me, let me change that because I, I, want to, I want to fix that, all right? Um, Okay. Jesus is teaching and Luke records it for us. Now, please notice that Jesus' message in this entire chapter has an overarching and underlying theme. And if you wanted to put it in two phrases, it would be, don't worry, don't be afraid. Say that with me. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Those are the impact themes of Luke chapter 12. Now, in verses 4 through 7, Jesus kind of pulls all of that together and summarizes what he wants to set forth. And read that in your outdoor voice with me, verse, one, verse 4 beginning. I say to you, my friend, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Fear him who has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Praise the Lord. Isn't that good to know? Now, in verses 11 and 12, he said those words, do not worry. And he's talking about when you're called before authorities and wondering what to say. He said the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. Pastor El, you and I draw great strength from that, and that's a favorite verse of his. In verse 13, he tells a story about a man who thought he could eat, drink, and be merry, be merry. And he didn't realize that while he's preparing for everything else, he hadn't prepared to die. And God calls him a fool. And then in verse 22, Jesus says it again, do not worry. And then we come to verse 32, and Jesus repeats his theme, don't be afraid. I don't have to tell you that fear is a major problem in America. People are afraid of a variety 
of perceived threats. Uh, the top five fears in America, in fact, after COVID-19 and with all that's going on in our, our world, uh, crazy elections and political wars and violence in the street, uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned, I'm, I'm thinking that our, the, the American Psychiatric Association is working overtime to come up with new phobias in order to classify things that people are afraid of. But here's what they've classified as the top five. Fear of speaking in front of a crowd. Topophobia. Fear of heights, acrophobia. Fear of financial ruin, chromatophobia. Fear of disease, pathophobia. We've seen a lot of that lately, haven't we? In fact, there are a lot of people still gripped by this particular one in a very serious way because of COVID and because of the mixed messages that we keep getting about that virus. And then there's the fear of death, thanatophobia. See, fear comes in all forms. Any object can be the subject or the catalyst for fear. In 1933, in his first inaugural address, President Franklin D. Roosevelt made a, a, a short speech about 20 minutes. But he included in this, because it was a very crucial time in America's history, the only thing he said we have to fear is fear itself. Most of the time, that's all we hear of that quote. I like what he continues to say. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. I think he had something. I read where another man said that fear is simply the dark room where negatives are developed. Whoa. Think about it. But fear paralyzes, as President Roosevelt said. A favorite story about a country preacher who uh, enjoyed visiting a widow because he knew that she had a wonderful garden where she grew all kinds of vegetables and she would enjoy cooking fresh vegetables for her preacher when he came by to visit. One day he arrived about lunchtime, knocked on the door, and called out, Mrs. Jones, but Mrs. Jones didn't answer. So he called again, Miss Jones, Miss Jones. He was puzzled because the back door was open and he could see food on the stove, but he didn't see Miss Jones. Well, knowing her sense of humor, he just left his card on the door without going in uh, with this note. Dear Ms. Jones, read Revelation 3.20. Well, that verse says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice, I will come in and eat with them. <laughs> he thought that was real funny, just like you did. What he didn't realize about that time that he arrived, Ms. Jones was getting out of the bathtub. And not being presentable to answer the door, she just hid behind the door until he left. Well, after reading the pastor's card, she wrote a note and left it on his desk, one for him. Dear pastor, I got your card. Please read Genesis 3, verse 10. And that verse says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so <laughs> I hid. <laughs> You can almost use the word for about anything, can't you, huh? <laughs> but ever since Adam and Eve, fear has been on the planet. 
and in the hearts of men and women. Let's focus on a key passage that Jesus uses to teach us. It's verse 32 through 34. I'm only going to use verse 32. Fear, read it out loud with me, will you please? Let's read the word of God together. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Oh, hallelujah. Lord, I thank you for your word today. Oh, mighty God, speak to us, I pray. Will you just hide me behind the cross, Lord? Would you teach us, Holy Spirit? Would you drive out every vestige and semblance of fear? We come against it. We curse it in the name of Jesus. And let your word be that foundation upon which we stand that deals with fear today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Words and phrases have always fascinated me. And I find here in Luke 30, verse 32, a great example of what is known in literature as a mixed metaphor. A mixed metaphor is in use when you have two or more disjointed concepts. Sometimes they can be confusing, sometimes they can be humorous and funny. Here are a few examples of mixed metaphors. You buttered your bread, now lie in it. Here's another one. He opened a Pandora's box of worms. Here's another one. It's as easy as falling off a piece of cake. Mixed metaphors. You see, actually a, a mixed metaphor is considered a grammatical error in an English class. You put mixed metaphors in your term paper and you're probably going to get points taken off. But let me just pass a word of encouragement to you who are English teachers. You, number one, you can use this verse as an example to your students of what a mixed metaphor is. But also, let me just add another one. Next time one of your students uses mixed metaphors, be easy on them because Jesus used them too. And so cut them some slack, will you? Now notice, I want us to realize Jesus didn't make a mistake here. He's speaking intentionally. He is using this mixed metaphor to teach us about the character of God. And so he switches metaphor, metaphor in the sentence, not one time, but two times. And he gives us three different metaphors. He first talks about sheep. Then he talks about a father. Then he talks about a king. And these are three totally different metaphors. And yet Jesus uses them to apply to our great God, our Heavenly Father. And let me just say this right at the outset. You may not be an atheist, but what Jesus is doing is teaching us about God the Father because even though you may not be an atheist, if you have a flawed concept of God and your image and picture of God is not founded on the revelation of the truth of God's Word, then you might as well be an atheist because you're no better than an atheist because you're believing in something that is a figment of your imagination. And Jesus knew this, and that's why he taught us who God is, what God is like, so that we know him as the God who loves us and cares for us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Hallelujah. So it's not enough just to believe in God. You and I have to have a relationship with God. 
And how many know in order to have a relationship with God, we must know who God is, what God is like. So that's why Jesus taught the way he did. Now, some people believe God and have a picture of God as some kind of harsh, cruel deity that's sitting out there just waiting to catch you making a mistake. And then he's got a stick. He's going to whack you. He's going to come down on you. And then he can't wait to punish you. How many know that's not who our God is? So other people believe God's some kind of a long-bearded, sentimental old man sitting out in a rocking chair somewhere. And he's just going to let anybody and everybody into heaven. It doesn't matter what kind of life you've lived, what you believe, how you've behaved on this earth. It doesn't matter because this old man who can call God is just going to let everybody come to heaven. I mean, no, that's not right. And if you believe that, that's a very atheistic, false understanding of God. So let's let Jesus teach us about God with these three portraits. And we're going to see three reasons, good reasons, why you don't have to be afraid. Why you can live fearless in a fearful time. First, he teaches us that God is our strong shepherd. He employs the metaphor of a flock of sheep. Imagine that. He calls his disciples little flock. And he calls all of his true followers. That's you and me little flock. And when you compare, I suppose little is the right word, with the rest of the population of the world, those who are true followers of Jesus Christ, I suppose are smaller compared to the rest of the world and the population. I love those simple words of Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord, say it with me, is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Maybe you need a shepherd today. I do, and we all do. What are times when you need God to be a strong shepherd for you? I want to tell you, everyone listening to me this morning needs a shepherd. I said everybody listening needs this strong shepherd. And the first time we need a strong shepherd is when you're lost. I said you need a shepherd when you're lost. Do you ever wonder why the Bible compares us to sheep? Well, a real-life shepherd wrote one time that sheep have, sheep have three unique characteristics. Number one, they're dumb. Number two, they are directionless. And number three, they are defenseless. How many have ever seen a sheep in a circus act performing tricks? No. They're too dumb to learn tricks. They can't. They can't be trained to do tricks. Think about it. Sheep wander off. They can't find their way home. They fall over and they get what they, what's called cast. They get on their back, they can't get up. Somebody has to help them. You, you have homing pigeons. When I was a, a teenager, I, I used to raise pigeons. I'd love them. And I'd, I'd sometimes take them way out in the country and turn them loose. And when I'd get back home, they were there before I got there. Homing pigeons, they call them. I love doing that. Dogs and cats, they can find their way home. How many ever heard of a homing sheep? No, they get lost. They don't know where to go. See, that's why you need a strong shepherd. Athletic teams have mascots like tigers, bears, eagles, lions. Ever hear a school called fighting lambs? Mighty sheep. 
No. But see, God made the lamb to be the mascot for the whole human race. More about that. Bible says through the prophet, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. See, without Christ, we are dumb, we are directionless, and we are defenseless. We need a strong shepherd. Never fear, because God wants to be your shepherd. What do you, what do you think Jesus is thinking when he looks over this room today? He sees the people here. He sees young people. He sees older people. He sees some people that are bigger than others. He sees smaller people. He sees different nationalities. He sees working people. He sees retired people. And on and on. But he sees more than that. Matthew 9 verse 36 tells us what he sees when he looks at a crowd. It says when he saw them, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And if you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you're like a lost lamb that is without a shepherd. The Bible uses that word intentionally, the word lost. And he uses it, the Bible uses that to describe the condition of a person who is without Jesus. The Bible says Jesus came to this earth for that very reason. To what? Seek and to save that which is, come on, what is it? Lost. See, the Bible, it describes the condition of a person who is not in fellowship and in relationship with God, who does not know Jesus Christ. Perhaps you may be here this morning and you're ready to admit your life has gotten off track and you've wandered away from God's plan for your life. I want to tell you, Jesus has gone to amazing lengths and steps in order to get you on track. The Bible says in Luke 15 that God will leave even the 99 that are in the fold and he will go and look for one lost sheep. Why? Because he loves you. He cares for you. That's why Jesus went to the cross. And what God is saying is that he would still go to the cross if you were still only one person that needed to be found and rescued from being lost. Jesus would die for you. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. Somebody once wrote a song. In fact, you probably heard the pair called Simon and Garfunkel. They wrote a song and sang it, I Am a Rock. It speaks about the loneliness of individualism. And that's the second reason why we need a strong shepherd when you're lonely, when you feel all alone. The lyrics of that one line in their song said, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock, I am an island, for a rock feels no pain, and on an island, an island never cries. There are a lot of lonely people. Somebody once said that a city is a place where thousands of people can be lonely together. We live in that kind of community, don't we? Maybe you're here today and you're feeling all alone. 
Maybe that's the sense that you would use to describe where you are. There's a verse in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, that gives you a picture and me of what God has to say about that, that beautiful shepherd. It says he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms, carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. <laughs> Don't you long for that? Do you long for the creator of the universe to just gather you in his arms, the arms of love? His arms are in many ways found right here. May I tell you that you need the body of Christ. The arms of God he uses are the local church. The arms of the family of God are the arms that God uses to take away the loneliness and to deal with the hurt and to change lostness from being found and in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? Amen. It's the word of God. Oh, my friends, you need a flock. All of us here are dumb, directionless, and defenseless sheep, but we need a shepherd who leads us and feeds us and loves us, and that's what Isaiah described. And if you need a flock, I want to invite you to this little flock called First at Firewheel. There are people here who will love you with the Father's love. I found that to be true. Have you? I said, I found that to be true. And it's because of God. Years ago, before radio and television, the primary entertainment was uh, people who were called orators, and they would ply their skills in huge auditoriums, and people by the hundreds would gather and uh, be thrilled with the masterful use of the orator as he used his voice to recite some piece of literature or poetry or something. Well, a well-known old pastor one time after uh, the crowd had been thrilled by a, a, a prominent orator uh, reciting his, his prose, the old pastor stood up knowing that the orator was a Christian and he re because the orator, after the crowd had applauded, said, uh, I'm opening it to request. Is there something someone would like for me to recite? And the old pastor said, I'd like to hear you recite the 23rd Psalm. Well, the man thought for a moment, and then knowing the pastor personally, he said, I'll do that on one condition. I'll recite it and quote it if you will agree to quote it after me. The pastor agreed. He sat down. The orator began. He got a sip of water. He cleared his throat. And with his inflections and tones and rising and falling of his voice, he began with his melodious voice. The Lord is my shepherd. And he goes all the way through it. Finally, at the very end, he reaches a crescendo. And when he finished, the crowd erupted in applause. And then they sat down. And the orator looked over at the old pastor and said, now, sir, please come. He stood up. He began to quote the 23rd Psalm. His voice was weak from thousands of sermons. From birthdays and age, his voice trembled. He had the twang of a country preacher and that kind of dialect. But make no mistake about it, as he began that wonderful song, 
and he got to, he leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Crowd got silent. Something was in the room that was different. Everybody was gripped by the words of that passage. And finally, the hush in the room was broken by the famous orator standing, and as he wiped a tear, he walked up and hugged the old pastor, and he said, folks, I want to tell you something. Here is the difference in my recitation and my good friends, the pastor. I knew the psalm, <laughs> but he knows the shepherd. Oh, you see, friends, this is the difference. Can you say that today? I know the shepherd. I know the shepherd. Oh, hallelujah. Yes. When you know him, you're strong shepherd. You don't have to be afraid of anything. I said you can go fearless in fearless times. Are you hearing me this morning, church? Next, Jesus changes metaphors, and he shows us that God is our loving father. He moved from sheep to a father. His disciples had asked him to teach them to pray, and he had used a model prayer, and he said, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. In verse 9 of Matthew 6, you won't find God portrayed in any of the teachings of Islam as a father. You won't find him as a father in Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, or any of the other isms. In fact, the late uh, Vance Havner, who was a uh, Senate chaplain for many years of the U.S. House, of the U.S. Senate, said one time that the day is coming when all of those isms are going to be changed to wasms. <laughs> I love it. The isms are going to be changed to wasms because God is not in them. Oh, hallelujah. In his teaching, Jesus referred to the Father God the Father more than just as a figure. He said we could know him. He said we could call him Abba, Father. Now that's not some Swedish rock group. That's an Aramaic word as a name for God the Father. And the meaning in Aramaic is, is Papa or, or Daddy. It's, it's a term of endearment. It shows relationship. You, you need that kind of father, and I need that kind of father. When are some times you need that kind of a father when you feel unloved? I'm gonna tell, I don't have to tell you. You know this. People everywhere are starving for love, hungry for love. There's an old country song that they used to sing, looking for love in all the wrong places. See, multitudes all around us are looking for love. And some people think that some sort of a physical relationship will fill that gnawing emptiness. And so they give themselves to all kinds of relationships that are unfulfilling and empty and hollow. Studies show that one of the most basic emotional needs of all human beings is the need to be loved. Every person in this room knows what I'm talking about. And that's why Jesus came, see. Jesus came to show us the love of God the Father. Little Chad was a shy, quiet boy. He was 
quiet and young. One day he came in from school and his mother saw he had uh, been with the kids as they came home. But this day he said, Mom, I want to make a Valentine for everybody in my class. Oh, she said, I wish he wouldn't do that because as she watched the kids come home, she watched him walking with them. And they were all talking, laughing, hanging on each other, having fun. And Chad was always way in the back, walking by himself. Nobody walking with him. And yet he had asked. And so she decided to go along with her son. She got the paper, she got the glue, she got the crayons, and she said, okay. So for three weeks before Valentine's, he meticulously made a Valentine for every member of his class, 35 of them in his class. Valentine's Day finally came. Chad carefully put them in a bag. He was excited. He goes out the door. He goes off to school, and his mother waits. It's a long day for her. So she decided she's going to cook him some of his favorite cookies. Just in time for him to get home, she'll get a glass of milk, set it out for him. And here she looks, and here he comes. Sure enough, He's walking behind the kids. His arms are empty. His hands are empty. She doesn't see anything. She just knows that he didn't get many Valentines if he got any at all. But she sees him walking a little faster. It seems like there's a different look on his face. And when she opens the door for him, she expects him to just burst into tears when he walks in. But instead, he just goes right on by and she said, here, Chad, I've made some of your favorite cookies for you, and here's a glass of milk. But he hardly even heard her. All she could hear was him saying under his breath, not a one, not a one. And then he said, I didn't forget a one, not a single one. He made a valentine for every last one of them. I want to tell you, God hasn't forgotten you. Your father hasn't forgotten you. He knows exactly where you are. He knows the hair on your head. Jesus told us that. He knows every sparrow that falls. And you're worth far more than sparrows. God tells us how much he loves us in 1 John 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I learned more about the love of God when in the first five seconds I became a father than I learned ever in Bible school or seminary or grad school. I can tell you there's something about becoming a father. You instantly learn about the love of a father. That happened to me at 6.03 a.m. on Saturday morning, January the 18th, 1975. And in seconds... I realized something about God I hadn't realized before. My son was born. I had an instinctive love for him like no other. I didn't have to learn to love him. I didn't have to decide whether or not I was going to love him. He didn't earn my love. He didn't have to do anything to earn it. I just loved him because he was my son. In fact, the first few months of his life, he was rude to me. <laughs> he woke me up at night, the first 18 months to be exact. 
He cried at the strangest times. He'd get food on my clean clothes and spit baby food out. He'd mess up his high chair and the floor. He demanded that I keep him fed on one end and clean on the other end. But that didn't keep me from loving him. And that's when I began to realize just how much God the Father loves you and me. Even when we're rude to him, even when we ignore him, when we forget about him, he doesn't forget about us. Through Jesus, he said, I'm with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't leave that out. Forsake means I'm not going to leave you alone. You're not going to be alone when you have me. Oh, hallelujah. It's true. No earthly father or mother is perfect. There are parents who mistreat their kids, abandon them, abuse them. I know that. But to do that, they have to override that natural God-given instinct to love children. They have to push that down and just ride over it. And many, many do. And I just want to tell you, if you were raised by a mother and dad who did some of that to you, you may be here hurt today. Those memories are raw in your life. But don't let that keep you from welcoming your heavenly father who loves you. Don't let that become a barrier. That's not who he is. I said, that's not who he is. In fact, you need to know that before you can truly accept his love, you're going to have to forgive them for what they did. You've got to get that junk out of the way. You've got to let him walk in and pour his love in you and on you. You may be battling guilt, guilty feelings, for thinking you can't earn your parents' love. You couldn't there, so you can't earn God's love. It doesn't work that way. I said it doesn't work that way. You don't earn his love. No. Hear me this morning. You may, you may feel like you don't deserve his love. And you're battling with that. You've got a fear. That's a fear you have. I, he could never accept me. I because I, I'm not sure he'll love me. I want to tell you that's from the devil. That's not from God. God will love you. He does love you. In fact, you don't deserve it. I just need to tell you right up front. Look over to your neighbor and say, it's not about you. It's about God. It's not about you. It's about God, and he's decided to love you. He wants to be your loving father. Hallelujah. Oh, Yes. Would you accept his love today? You also need a father when you fear the unknown. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what comes next. Most kids think their dad is tough and can protect them and any uncertainty like that if dad's around. Two kids were arguing, arguing at school about their dads. One finally said, well, my dad can beat up your dad. The other kid said, so what? So can my mom. <laughs> When I was little, I thought my dad could do everything, anything. When he was around, I didn't fear anything or anybody. You know what I'm talking about. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have that kind of trust in our father? He's, he's got this. Amen. I said, he's got this. 
God invites us to trust him like that when we're afraid. He said in verse 10 of Isaiah 41, do not fear for I'm with you. Come on, read it out loud with me. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What are you afraid of today? What's tormenting you? Go ahead and just turn it over to him. Give it to him today. Put that fear in his hands. Let God's care and love sustain you. And you'll see that those things aren't so scary after all. Hallelujah. Don't be afraid because you have a father who loves you. So Jesus is talking about sheep. He talks about a father. And then finally he refers to a kingdom. God's not only a shepherd and a father, but God is our mighty king. I said God is our mighty king. Oh, hallelujah. To have a kingdom, you have to have a king. And God will be a mighty king for you first when you are a weary soldier. When the battle wages long and hot. See, kings have armies and armies have soldiers. Not only are we sheep, not only are we children of our father, but we are also soldiers in the army of the Lord. We are engaged in battle. Maybe you've heard that old song our kids used to sing in children's church. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, and you know the rest of it. I hope you do because I don't. <laughs> Sometimes we think all battles are in the Bible are actual military warfare. No. There is spiritual warfare going now, and obviously we could take much more time than I will, and perhaps it deserves. But we fight battles on several fronts in our lives. We fight spiritual warfare against the devil and his organized, demonized, mobilized army. And they, sleep, they do not sleep night or day. And he, he has unleashed a horde on this planet. And his intent is to come after you and me. In fact, the Bible tells us he, in Peter, he goes around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know what that spiritual warfare is about. But we also fight emotional and personal battles. These are inside, deep within us battles. And God is there as well as our commander-in-chief when we fight those personal battles. We all face those, and sometimes they come through people. It's what happened to the prophet Jeremiah. In chapter 20 of Jeremiah, there is a passage and perhaps you have experienced something similar. Jeremiah faced opposition and persecution because he was bold enough to preach the truth and he was standing for righteousness. And he spoke that when it was very unpopular. See if his battle something, sounds something like you've experienced. Here's what he said in verse 10. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying perhaps he will be deceived, then we will prevail over him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. Hallelujah. Why could Jeremiah say that? Because he has a mighty king. 
You can say the same, my dear friend, because we have a man. Oh, man, I want to get with this, but I better hold it down here. We have a mighty king, and God promises he'll be mighty with us as a warrior on our behalf. You ever fear weary in the struggle sometime? I do. Uh, come on, just admit it. You do too. It's true, isn't it? The battle gets long sometime. But oh, God is with us. Years ago, Twyla Paris wrote a, and recorded a song entitled, The Warrior is a Child. Here are the lyrics. Lately, I've been winning battles left and right. But even winners can get wounded in the fight. People say that I'm amazing, strong, beyond my years. They don't see inside of me, I'm hiding all the tears. They don't know that I go running home when I fall down. They don't know who picks me up when no one is around. I drop my sword and cry for just a while because deep inside this armor, the warrior is a child. Maybe you're that wounded child warrior this morning. There's a reason you brought, God brought you to this service. It wasn't just to mark attendance one more time. Someone, someone once said that the Christian army is the only army that shoots its wounded. Isn't it sad that some of the meanest folks you'll ever meet are church folks? Well, I said it, and I'm not taking it back. I heard... I heard Pastor John Hagee say, I, I love that man. I, he and I grew up together in Houston. I've known him since we were boys. His father was the pastor for my grandparents and my, my mom and dad for a while. Bethel Hagee, little short German man. John Hagee said, sometimes you see Christians carrying a 15-pound King James Bible. But when you get to know them better, they're meaner than a two-headed snake. Wow. <laughs> Man. That's pretty mean, isn't it? How many know God hasn't called us to be that kind of people? He hasn't called us to be that kind of people. It may be that you've got some scars that were put there by People that are supposed to know Jesus. Don't hold that against God the Father. No, don't hold that in your heart against the King. It's about time for some of us to say, King Jesus, I've had enough r and R. I'm ready to get back in the battle. I'm ready to serve you. I'm ready to walk with you. See, God will be your King if you are a willing servant. Now, you notice in all of these other situations, I use the word when, when, when. But this one, I'm using the word if, because now it's your move. If you're a willing servant, God desires to be your strong Savior, your loving Father, your mighty King, if you're willing to allow Him to and you're willing to serve Him. See, in a kingdom, faithful subjects offer to serve their king. They're not drafted. God doesn't conscript. It's an, an, a response of the heart. 
You and I want to serve the Lord. Our God is King of Kings. And the Bible says we can, we can boldly approach his throne, the throne of grace. You don't have to crawl in there. No, come boldly to the throne of grace. Hallelujah. What do you think we're going to be doing in heaven? Floating around on clouds, eating, eating uh, Milky Way candy bars? No. Revelation 7, verse 15. Read it out loud with me, please. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hallelujah. Oh, dear friends, in this life you may cry a river of tears. But I want you to know there's coming a day and there is a place God is preparing. Our Lord has promised it. He's going to wipe away all of your tears. No more heartache. No more crying. No more separation. No more unanswered questions. See, Jesus isn't just using mixed metaphors here. He's trying to show us what God is like so we can have a relationship with our Creator you can literally walk with him every day of your life. It's more than just on Sunday and singing a song in your presence, Lord. No, his presence is wherever you are. If you have him in your heart and in your life, he walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me I'm his own. Hallelujah, as we sing. But you have to choose him. So what is your choice today? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with God through faith in Christ? That's what Jesus is trying to show us. Do you want to go to heaven when you die? How many do? I suspect everybody here does. Well, there are actually three ways that you can go to heaven. Let me give them to you. Number one is that if you are born, and then before you reach the age of accountability, you die then we believe that precious children and babies, all of those aborted babies, yes, they're in heaven. There with Jesus. Do you believe that? I don't think any of you qualify here to be in that category. So you're not going to heaven because you understood what I've been saying to you. You're not going to heaven that way. The second way is for you to live such a life. I mean, there's not one flaw. There's not one... Uh, error in your life. There's not one sin, not one evil word, not one evil thought. You have followed and obeyed the law and the will of God perfectly so that you're without sin. Anybody here qualify? I didn't think so. Then there's one more way, and that's to put your faith and your trust like a child in the finished work of Jesus and what he did on Calvary's cross when he allowed himself to be nailed to that cross and he bled and he died and he is the one who is without sin. You talk about a mascot? That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he did that for you and for me. And that's the only way, if you want to go to heaven, that you're going to go. And I'm telling you the truth this morning. 
And so you open your heart and you open your life and you pray to receive Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And you say, God, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. Yes, I need a Savior. I need the shepherd. I need the Father. I need the King of kings. And I want a relationship with him. Oh, I want him to come into my life. I want him to change me. I want him to wash me and make me whole again. Hallelujah. Glory to God. God be with you.